Greetings, welcome to FPC Up Close and Personal. Every week we get a chance to interview and talk with one of the members of our church, and this is one of those interviews. Cool. Um, hey, Pastor Doug here. I am here today with an old friend, Pete Doctor. Pete is husband to Amanda. He is father of two very impressive adults. How did that happen, Pete? Yeah, I know, they're big already. It's it's crazy. Yeah. And he is director of a bunch of great Pixar movies, Monsters, Monsters, Inc., Inside Out, and the recently released Soul Up as well. I forgot to sneak that in there. And the recently released Soul just came out on the 25th on Disney+. Plus. And in his spare time, he is the chief creative officer of Pixar, which I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you can do that sometime, crazy. somewhere along crazy. the way. Um, so... I want to just alert, spoiler alert, I'm going to do my very best not to give away the movie, um, but we will be talking about the movie. So I just full spoiler alert to those who um, who would not want to. Doubles as a little advertisement to go see the movie. Then. Go see the movie. Yeah, it's see. so good. Pete, <laughs> fantastic. Um, oh, thank you. So Pete, as we start, um, you know, we, we, we usually have interviews of people that are part of our church community and you're part of the church community, not just necessarily our church community up here in the Pacific Northwest, but um, our intergenerational question for this month is what do you choose to give up to experience God? It's a pretty, Ooh. pretty heavy question. That's a big one. Boy. Yeah. Uh, huh. Okay. I guess. What do I choose to give up in order to, I guess the closest I can come to that is uh, I gave up Instagram recently because I felt like I'm spending too much time staring at this little box in my hands and not enough time just sitting and, and bathing in God and, and experiencing that. So I, I have done that. Um, I think that's one step anyway. I think that's good. And I, I put that out as a challenge and encouragement to our church. That might be, <laughs> or at least limit it to a certain amount of time during the day. Yeah. Um, so Pete, I know you, but our church, um, cause, cause we were part of a small group for yes. six or seven years Isn't and that long? young kids. Um, and yeah. that small group is still going, right? It is. Yeah. The, the, what it's not predecessors, the people following after you. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's mutated and changed, but it's, we still, we, we meet every Wednesday, yeah. even now on zoom, which is kind of like, okay, all I do at work is zoom, but you know, it's, it's good. It's good to be able to talk to everybody. It is good. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's a good group. And so we miss we miss those days. And I remember we used to have the little kids would go to one house and the bigger kids would go to another house and then we'd all meet in another house. There was a lot. Well, and the, the thing that always holds, holds us all together is Penny Barthel makes desserts. Oh, so and fun. we get none of that now. So oh, it's brutal. rip off, it's rip brutal. off. But so since our church doesn't know you, I want to do just a lightning round, short answer questions. Okay. Ready? Okay, here we go. Favorite Disney character growing up? Dumbo. Dumbo. Favorite Disney attraction when you went to Disneyland? Pirates of the Caribbean. Ah, coolest thing that you have gotten to do in Disneyland because you are now a big shot movie director. Walk through the Pirates of the Caribbean. So, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> and now, what is the thing that they're not letting you do even though you are a big shot movie director? The cool the Walk things you want to do. Walk through the Pirates of the Caribbean again because it's all closed. <laughs> Nothing is happening there. And nobody, that's the weirdest thing to think about. Nobody's been to Disneyland since April last year. Oh, Crazy. Deep sadness in my heart. Yeah. Um, so, um, for those who haven't seen your movies, I we notice pizza plays a prominent role in, in your last two movies. Um, so, what is your favorite pizza? What's your pizza of choice? 
Okay, well, anybody who's been to the Bay Area, you'll be familiar with Zachary's Pizza. Of course. Which is amazing. And in fact, for years, uh, my kids and I would make posters so you could see them up in the stores. I remember uh, that. You know, it's not just us. I mean, a lot of people do that. Um, and so that that's great pizza. It's, it's Chicago deep dish, but I really love their thin crust pepperoni. Good stuff. That is good. So the thin crust at Zachary's. And do you have a yeah. particular... One on Solano, or did you go to the one on college? What's your? Well, you know, since you left, they have opened another one not far from where we are here, so it's a new one. That makes life easier. Yeah. Okay. Next question: What character that you have created would you take to Zachary's Pizza to <laughs> hang out with? Just one of the characters. Any? Just which one would you want to take to have pizza with? I think I'd take Kevin the Bird from Up, just because that would be fun to watch. <laughs> <laughs> would yeah. Would be. Well, for those who know you, we know that Up, um, while not fully about your life, had some parallels in your life. Um, and you grew up in Minnesota. What do you miss about the heartland? What do you miss about Minnesota? Well, I think there's a friendliness uh, and a sort of a little bit slower pace that I, I miss here. I mean, it's funny, especially now in COVID times, I don't know if you found this, everybody's masked up. And even with the masks, if you say hi to people, which I do all the time, because that's what you do, you say hello. Nobody but, says hi back. It's weird. I don't know if that's just the Bay Area and everybody's freaked out to even breathe, but uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's sad. Uh, so yeah, I get that. What do you love about the Bay Area? You're now in the Bay Area, what do you love? Well, right now it's probably 40 below zero in Minnesota <laughs> and here I can still sit outside. It's raining. Oh, okay. So I, I think the weather is great. Um, the, the, the food is fantastic. It's, it's home now. I've lived here for 30, 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's now you're making me jealous. <laughs> Those are good memories. Um, favorite memory about winning an Oscar. Wow. Uh, well, they're all a little bit like, I don't know, do you, have, do you, do you for me, getting married was like this overwhelming, like, wah, I kind of have like weird flashes and blur. It's a lot like that, where like before I knew it, I was backstage and I know that like uh, 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 George Clooney had gotten up to shake my hand on the way up and I like, I, but I barely remember every, anything. I think my brain just flooded <laughs> and then it finally came down a little later. I love that. That makes sense. Um, favorite song or hymn that people sing in church when we used to sing songs and hymns in church together? Wow. That's, I don't know that I have a favorite. Okay. You know, I, they, when they come, although I'm sort of a traditionalist, like, uh, you know, uh, the old, I'm not like a big, uh, I don't know a lot of the new, the newer ones. I, I'm, a, I like the John Wesley, you know, so, songs from 1800s or whatever that was. <laughs> Just as I am and all those. Yeah. Um, is there a book on your nightstand that you're reading now that you're enjoying? Well, I've been reading this. I read it all and now I'm going back again and it's the Jesuits guide to almost everything. Have you seen that? Oh, sounds good. It's a very good uh, book. And it, uh, being brought up Protestant, I was not aware of a lot of this Catholic stuff. And uh, so a lot of the ideas of like seeing God in everything is the very Ignatius yeah. uh, thing that, that actually, this is a lead into the movie, uh, that we tried to kind of put into the movie the idea that there's not just like 
church and then there's everything else in my life that, that God is everywhere and could be seen in everything, even stuff that seems evil or hopeless or whatever. And so just trying to be aware of that uh, is, is a real strong theme in the film. Preach it, brother. I love it. Um, do you have a song that you're digging recently? Well, this is going to be shameless self-promotion, but the music in the movie with by both John Batiste, who's an amazing jazz musician, and then Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who, of course, Nine Inch Nails, not probably the music you'd expect no. in a Pixar movie, but they did great. And it's they're very different from each other, but very complimentary. And I, I've been listening to that. It's fantastic. I'm listening to it as well. I love it. You guys, cool. you guys knocked it out. And I, and I didn't, I, I will confess, I didn't know their names and I had to go look it up. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, Nine Inch Nails. Wow. <laughs> so impressed with what they did, though. I think it was really, and, and a really interesting call to have them do it. I'm sure that, I'm sure that was greeted with a little skepticism by some higher ups there. But I think, you know, you get to do things now that you're the big boss. So, yeah. And, and I think people, you know, as much as I love the sort of more traditional orchestral scores from Up and all those movies and amazing musicians, that's actually one of the high points in making the film is at the very end, all the tough stuff is done. The movie either works or it doesn't, but either way, it's locked. And then you get to sit with a 110 piece orchestra. They all come in, they have their, their instruments and they play. It's beautiful and, and it happens so fast. That's, like glorious and by working this way with these guys i sort of knowingly cut that off because they're all uh, uh i mean they're amazing musicians but it's just them in their in their studio however in the long run of course covid happened and uh i don't know if we would have had music in the movie had we not gone with them because they were still able to keep going they can make music of just the two of them they didn't need a 110 piece orchestra which you can't do right now no that's actually that's amazing that is true or you would have had to just recycle some of the music from <laughs> yeah that's right back to it would be very confusing we would yeah. go, right. <laughs> um so hardest part for you of covid so far hardest part is well just not being around people you know and especially in a creative endeavor like this you can do a lot of work over zoom you know and animators are kind of solitary loners anyway but uh the whole collaborative thing is is really tough without being physically present um that's been hard yeah, with you on that um this might be a harder question but what's the best part of 2020 everyone sort of hmm. talks about how much 2020 stunk but what's the best part of 2020 well i will say that i think the best part is my daughter who just graduated from nyu she would be out in the world, you know, plying her trade, but instead is stuck home with us, which she would probably say is one of the sucky things. But I say it's like bonus time <laughs> with the kid. And it's really worked out great. She's She's got a great attitude and, and um, just it's wonderful having time with her. That's fantastic. I love that. Well, um, Pete, this movie, I, you've already hit on it, but this movie has some really profound spiritual themes. And I know that you guys do, and you especially do a lot of pre-work before you even start the story. Um, what was some of that prep work as you, as you thought about doing a movie that was based on some pretty intense spiritual themes? Who'd you talk to? What did you do to sort of set the groundwork getting into, the, getting into these themes? Well, one of the first things maybe I'll just set the table is, uh, you know, this film is very personal, like all the films I've done, you know, Monsters, Inc. is kind of about being a parent, being an animator, loving work, but then being drawn to having a kid at home and how do I do both. This film 
really after winning the Oscar for Inside Out, I was like, this is probably as good as it gets. It's like way beyond anything I ever dreamed of as a kid. I thought I'd be just like drawing at a, t at a table. Instead, I'm on stage accepting an Oscar. The film was well received. Holy cow, what do we do now? I guess I do it again or try to or go back to work. I don't know. I guess somehow I felt like somehow that experience would complete me or make everything good. And now I wouldn't have to be anxious all the time and worry and all the things that we all do. And instead, I still felt the same. Yeah. I'm the same guy. Nothing changed. Sure, it was fun, but nothing changed. So I thought, I wonder if there's a movie there, if there's something just about that experience, because I think it's so formative for us to dream about these achievements. Someday I'm going to write the great American novel. I'm going to win. I'm going to join the sports team. I'm going to do whatever it is, you know, and that everything's going to fall into place. And instead you find out, well, there's nothing wrong with pursuing these passions, but they don't complete you in the way that you maybe secretly hope or dream that they might. So that's really what the, the film is about. Um, at the same time, I guess my kids were growing up and, and having worked on Inside Out, I was thinking a lot about, well, where did they... My kids, when they were first born, I, I can look back at pictures of them and go like, they had a personality already. They came into the world with a sense of who they were. How the heck did that happen? Where did that happen? How is it possible? And so I just dreamt of a place where maybe our souls were trained before they came to Earth and uh, then playing around with that idea led us to uh, the, this like, concept of the great before and the story as it eventually evolved. We talked with a lot of, uh, of course, the first worry was that we might accidentally offend like half of the globe by saying something about religion. Started doing movies about spiritual <laughs> issues here. That's right. Yeah, so I met with as many different leaders as I could. I met with Mark Laberton, talked about sort of Christian perspective and, and traditions. I talked with a rabbi. I talked to, this is going to sound like a, a joke, you know. <laughs> uh, but I, I, a bunch of folks from Berkeley talking about um, Buddhism, Hinduism, fascinating stuff. Both um, met with them to avoid offending people, but also just to understand what is the soul, how do we perceive it? Where, what does it look like? All those kind of things. So, sorry, that was a long answer to no, a very simple that. question. I love that. Well, and you just, you just clicked on what I wanted to talk about as well. The themes, some of the themes, it seems like there's a theme of grief that has run through your last three movies. You know, the loss of a spouse and up, the grief that comes with the transition in Inside Out. And Soul continues to be a book about, it continues to be a story about grief, a, a story of loss and grief and some serious issues about grief and loss. So first off, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for doing stories about grief. I really appreciate it. I, you make my job easier. Because <laughs> I think helping, people, helping us to grieve is a huge issue. I don't think Americans do it well. But what draws you to the topic of grief? What draws you to this, these stories of grief and loss? I think it's because they're so profound and emotional. You know, it's uh, in working on Inside Out, realize, oh, the, the job of emotions are to tag things that are important. So I go through the day, I've done who knows how many things. They're not really very important. I totally forget them. But if something important happens, whether it's joyous or sad or whatever, your brain marks it and tags and goes like, remember this, this is important. And so emotional stuff is important. That's why our, our the, the whole point of movies is to uh, get people to feel, you know, to 
to care about these characters. So I guess for me, uh, you know, there is this essential bittersweetness of being alive. There's some great, great joys, but there's a lot of downs and a lot of disappointments and sadness. And I just don't think you can ignore that and speak honestly about, you know, I, I, I always, I don't know if people find this absurd, but you know, our movies are about cars and bugs and monsters, but I always feel like they're really about us. They're very personal stories. They're, uh, you know, a lot of times people think they're just for kids, but I really have been aiming for us as adults um, from the get-go in, in kind of the underlying theme of these movies. But kids can understand a lot. Well, hopefully that's the goal, yeah. I mean, kids get stuff. Um, they get they're smart. Kids. They are very smart. Yeah, we try to make was this great Chuck Jones who did all the Bugs Bunny cartoons, uh, or not all of them, but a lot. He said, we try to make films that are intelligent enough for kids, but simple enough for adults as well. Like <laughs> kids, kids are pretty smart. They get it. And uh, um, and also, if you if you make it visual, I think one of the big attractions for animation is it it distills down the complexity of life into something that's like only the essential parts. You'd get rid of all the the chafe and the riffraff and, and it just becomes like the part that you can easily read. You can tell what a character is thinking. You can understand what's happening in the plot and you can go back and watch it again. And I think those are all reasons why kids are drawn to it and maybe me too. <laughs> I, I, well, C.S. Lewis said that if the, move, if the book is not worth reading when you're 66, it's not worth reading when you're 10. And I think that's probably true for movies. If it's, not <laughs> yeah, worth watching, if it's not worth watching when you're 60, then it probably is not worth watching when you're 10. That is true. Um, what helps you deal with grief? How do you deal with the sadness, with the bitter parts of life? Well, uh, in working on Inside Out, one of the central questions was, why do we have to have sadness in our life? And, uh, you know, if you think of the emotions as these characters that are there to help you, all of them are there for the protection of the 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 person and sadness is telling you you got to slow down you got to stop you got to reassess your life now that this thing is gone it's silly to just go on as though nothing happened you have to reassess and um it also sends up a little flare to other people this person needs some help so i mean sadness is a real it can be a real uh unifier and a joiner of people um in a beautiful way through this sadness, I think I've made the, the closest friends I've had have come through difficult experiences with me um, and come to my side. So I think those are both key things. Absolutely. Those are those are Bible themes. That's right there. I love it. Um, I will share my sadness. This movie was not able to be released in theaters. Um, and I had to, a, you know, probably a relatively minor sadness in the scope yeah, of everything, but true, but, but the, the weekend finished and we found out that Wonder Woman 84 was the, the big hit of the weekend. And we were like, and soul should have been right there. It's <laughs> way up there, way, way in front of that. Um, so how do you deal with that grief? How did you deal with that? I, yeah, it, it, especially for me, you know, I don't know, a lot of people don't know this, but this film took five years. Well, it was close. It was four. It was, um, quicker than most of them <laughs> but even that four years is a long time and so then at the end of that like and we're coming out on video is like oh, oh no so i went through the sadness and the anger and the bargaining and all those different <laughs> stages um but in the end i think uh the acceptance of it is if we hadn't i don't know i think this is the best option of the, all the options that we have 
because there is something kind of timely about the film, even though it's not tied to anything current in events. But uh, a lot of the themes are very timely. And I think it's good that it's out now. And it did really well on, on Disney+. Plus. And uh, we heard in China, where it did come out in theaters, it beat Wonder Woman there. So there, there you we go. go. <laughs> yes. um, well, I, I want to talk, I want to move. You talked about kind of experiencing God in all places. And the, the word that I like to use for that is grace. And, and mm. you have, you've written in a number of grace moments. And there, there are grace moments in all of your films. But there are some really specific grace moments, and I will not draw attention to them because they'll just say that they one involves lollipops and one involves Joe Gardner with his mother. But there are these moments of just an, an un an un you know, undeserved gift being given to someone else. And we live in a society that feels less graceful um, than it ever has in my life. So how important are these moments of grace in the story? As you're thinking through the story, how important are these moments of just undeserved gift? Um, well, I, I like to say, so Joe, like, I don't know if, how many philosophy fans there are in the, in the crowd, but uh, I grew up, you know, going, taking philosophy classes and, you know, thinking about essentialism, which is basically the idea that, hey, God gave me something that I am born to do. Uh, and our main character is coming in with that, th that sense of like, I was born to play music. I have this gift. I'm really good. If I don't do that, I'm not going to be happy, and I have therefore this goal. And uh, and then the uh, opposing character is a nihilist. You know, she basically thinks, you know what, Earth is a meaningless nothing. There's no purpose to existence. Why deal with it? And so, uh, you know, in the end, I think where we kind of end up is more of an existentialist thing, which is, uh, and I'm this might be slight misrepresentation of existentialism, but the idea that you have to make it have meaning uh i I'm, maybe a better way of just saying it is like how many times have i walked down the street and not even noticed the beauty of that shrub over on the side i've just walked right past it and today i stop and i watch and i see these amazing leaf patterns and the the structure of the plant it's just you can get lost in that for hours if you let yourself and I feel like as an artist, there's something I've always felt kind of almost holy about sketching because it forces me to stop and really focus in on these things that I, I otherwise um, just drive right past. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I watched it and it, I returned to one of my life quotes. It comes from Frederick Buechner. And he says, listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery it is and the boredom and the pain of it no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it, because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments and life itself is grace. Um, and that felt like what the movie was for me, just the sense that, so I, I was gonna ask you how, do you, how do you stop and listen to your life? How, what helps you to pay attention to the bush? What helps you to notice? Um, the incredible structure. What helps you to, you know, what what catches your, what stops you from rushing off to the next thing? Because I know you have lots of next things. Your your plate, <laughs> yeah, is, your plate is usually quite full. Yeah, and I don't mean to say I'm very good at it. I <laughs> I, I um, am still learning. But I I think as part of that, you know, I it seems like a a cliche, or I would roll my eyes at it if I wasn't saying it myself. Maybe I will anyway. Uh, uh, that it's a it's a discipline. It's something that you have to grow into you have to be aware of yourself because if i don't i just go on to the next thing and i check my email and i 
go to the next meeting and try to be on time and all those things because I'm a good German. Like I've got to be on time and the schedule says this meeting's over now, so it's over now, you know. And um, there's a time and place for that, obviously. But uh, there's also, uh, I think, a real big chance that you're going to miss out on a lot if you let that drive all the time. Absolutely. I would agree. I would agree. And it's hard. It's hard, but I think they're to breathe in and just go, oh my gosh, what a gift that is. And to pay attention and to see it. Well, how do you do it? How do you stop and... I'm still working on it as well. I try to yeah. try to pay attention. I try to, um, I try not to, and just like you were saying, I try not to have my phone. I, I, I feel like our phones are blocking us from noticing these things. Um, I feel like, you know, I go out and walk the dog. And if I go out with my little earbuds in, I, I'm just listening to whatever the podcast is, listening to someone interview Pete Doctor about an upcoming movie, <laughs> learning all sorts of things about it. But um, yeah. <laughs> if I don't have those, I'm, I can kind of just pay attention. And, um, but I don't know. I, I actually think, I think that's maturity, which I'm not there yet, but I wish I could. I mean, I, I, I think that we grow in life by just receiving grace from God. And I think our job is to put ourselves in better positions to receive grace. And um, it helps when I'm not bitter. It helps when I'm not angry. It helps when mm -hmm. I'm not holding on to resentments. Um, but sometimes that's, and I'm curious about, about this, like, how do you choose to not feel bitter? That's, well, I, I think it's, I, I don't know if I can choose to not feel bitter, but I think I can choose to forgive and I can choose to, to be loving. Um, I, I can't. But even that's sometimes I don't, I don't a always do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a, it's a long process. I mean, it's a very long process. I'm, yeah. You know, we, you know, I've, I, we, we started talking about grief and certainly we've experienced grief since Zach died. And they say about grief that you either become better or become bitter. And I think there's, you know, and I think grief does not, in grief, you don't get to stay the same. Yeah. It forces you to move one direction. Um, yeah. But bitterness yeah, is you want to get to. Bitterness. There was a, an old Disney uh, director who said, you never learn anything that's easy. No. No. And uh, I think so in that sense, even though I would never wish for a grief like that, you are probably in a position to grow more than almost anything else. Absolutely. And not only do you never learn anything that's not easy, it's um, anything that's a value is usually not simple or easy. Right. easy. I think it's sometimes yeah. simple, but it's not easy. Yeah. The things that we value. Um, By the way, just going back to boredom, like I remember, okay, so really the reason I credit that I'm in this business at all was because my parents were musicians and dragged us to a lot of concerts. And I was bored, I did not want to, these are classical music concerts and I like, Ugh. so I'd grab a pen, gather everybody's programs and I'd start drawing. And out of boredom came the imagination that I employ every day. And I worry as anytime you go out to restaurants and you see parents with their kids and they set up an iPhone in front of them to watch some movie and I'm like, oh, you're robbing that kid of boredom. You know, and I know you're doing it because you think it's easier for us. We don't have to listen to screaming, which I've, my kids are old, so I don't know what I would have done. I probably would have done the same thing when they were little, but I think there's a real value and a necessity to boredom that uh, we're in danger of losing. So that's, all right, I'm off the soapbox now. No, I like it. I like it. Um, well, you've touched on this already, but I, um, one of the things, one of the Bible themes that I'm always intrigued in is this idea of cosmic disappointment. This idea that 
we get to the thing that we think is going to bring us life and we find out that it doesn't. I, I love to go back to the Genesis story, but you know, you, we go to bed with Rachel and we wake up with Leah. You know, there's this sense that we're like, this is it. This is going to complete my life. And, um, and it doesn't. And you talked about having that experience after Inside Out. Um, so, you know, in the Bible, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, I, I think the Bible message is that life is somewhat cosmic disappointment, except for God. And so how do we that, but, but there's a lot of things surrounding God that are disappointing. The church can be incredibly disappointing. A lot of the other elements. So um, how is that experience of cosmic disappointment? How important is that in the search for meaning? It seems like it's critically important in the movie um, that you did. And you said it's important in your own life too. Yeah. How important do you find that? Oh, it's, I mean, it, wouldn't it be nice if there was some simple answer where finally I could run a marathon or do something and be like, ah, now I can have <laughs> contented happiness through the rest of my life. You know, the truth is, even though nobody wants to hear it, it's not like that. And I actually have uh, been reading and listening to a little bit of Walter Brueggemann, yeah. the Old Testament scholar, and, and his idea that God is not one that provides closure and the end, you know, because in a sense, God is not done becoming God. Right. Uh, and so it's this reflection in our own lives of something way bigger than us that I, I don't know, for some reason, I found that very comforting in the struggle with all this that, hey, wait a minute, I want this story to have a nice ending. I want it to have a happy, you know, there, the, the end card there, and it just doesn't. Um, and so to kind of hear him talk about the unfinishedness of, of God or however, you know, it's a dangerous subject to talk about because he, you know, potentially are you saying God's changing? There's a lot of, a lot of big questions in there. Um, but I kind of feel like, look, in any relationship, a real hearty relationship, both parties have an effect on the other. Yeah. And so if we're going to be in relationship with God, I find it kind of comforting that maybe in some small way we might have an effect on God. Yeah, right. That's pretty profound. And I think the lack of closure helps for storytellers because we like stories to end with closure. But yes. the Bible stories don't always end with closure, certainly. No. They leave us left kind of going, oh, what's gonna what's, what are we going to do? What is, what's going to be? No, it's it's so funny, you know, being part of a Bible study, the more you go back and read these stories that you thought were an open and shut moral, <laughs> you read them and you're like, what? what? That doesn't even make any sense. What? If I were going to rewrite that, here's how I'd, so I, that's the way I always kind of thought about them is that somebody messed up, you know, <laughs> they didn't put this down right. And really they need to be more clear. But the whole point I think is that ambiguity and, and the sort of openness of it, um, just like life. It's not just simple. It's not like, here you go. There's the answer. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice? But yeah. Much. Um, what, what was, you know, as, as you said that that was kind of drawing you, this cosmic disappointment was sort of drawing you into this. Um, you know, I have, I've been reading this book by Richard Rohr that talks about life having two halves and that the first half is all about sort of chasing our dreams. And the second half is all about realizing that the dreams that we were chasing are not everything we thought they were <laughs> yeah it's been a very frustrating book <laughs> it's, it's been so, sort of and and yet i think there's something 
you know, it says that your first half of your life, your ego, you're, you're kind of building up your ego in the second half of your life is you're letting it get dismantled. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which it's a, it's a very different place to be. It's a very, very different place to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, that was one of the big worries of this film was that, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a, a second part of life story and, primarily stories in Hollywood are made for a young, like first half. Right. It's about winning the race or beating the bad guy or doing these accomplishments. And this is like, yeah. And then what happens, you know? So I was worried that it was pretty uh, risky in terms of whether people would resonate with it. Yeah. And um, I mean, from, it's been interesting. We, we also, we have this other character in the film uh, that's basically a soul who doesn't want to go live, doesn't want to be a part of earth. And then be, by being stuck there for a while, starts to understand the the, the reason. And, and her kind of underlying thing is, I worry that maybe I'm not good enough right. and um, that I'm not deserving. And that's another big theme in my own life is that coming to these realizations of, uh, or moments in my life where I feel like, oh, I, I failed. I'm not good enough. I didn't achieve. I didn't reach far enough. I didn't do enough. And then coming to these, and I, I wish I could like conjure this up every day, uh, <laughs> but the idea that, well, you know what? God loves you anyway. Amen. It's, it reduces me to tears just to think about, you know? Absolutely. So, yeah, no, pretty I'm, cool. I'm with you. I, um, my church is sick of hearing me say over and over, there's nothing we can do to make God love us any more or any less than he does mm. right now. But that's to understand the love of God, which is this mystery beyond yeah. anything we can get. Yeah. Simone Vey says that God loves as an emerald is green. I thought that was great. Just that you wow. know, God, God loves, you can chop up an emerald, but it's still going to be green. You can't ungreen an emerald. <laughs> yeah, so God that's loves true. How do you, um, how do you, I mean, it, you talked about, you know, how, how do you sit with that? How do you, I mean, you talked about trying to have those times of silence and sit and marinate in God's love, but you know, that's what originally drew me to all of, to Jesus and God and everything was just this idea of, of the love of God. Just that I am, I am unconditionally loved, no matter what. Um, I never got it, to be honest. I just didn't understand that idea until more recently. Um, I think I was drawn to the power and uh, creative energy of God being, I think, you know, going on walks has always been a real restorative thing for me. If I'm stuck or, or unsure, I go on a walk. Um, and that's where I really feel like, okay, this is undeniable. I stand here in the midst of this beauty. How is this not God? And, and the sort of, that's overwhelming and, and there's nothing wrong at all with that. But, uh, the idea of, of love, uh, an unconditional love has only more recently been sort of revealed to me, I guess. Wow. That's exciting. Yeah. That's a big deal. It is. And it's a mystery, but it is. Yeah. But to understand that, and I think when people think of church and religion, they often think of a God not like that. They think of a God who is waiting, you know, like a, a great killjoy or a God waiting to catch people doing something wrong, but just to understand. Well, and you can, you know, again, as you get into the mysteries of the Bible, you can understand there's moments where that happens, where God says, go kill all those other people, you know, and you're like, wait, oh, wait how does that end up with God as love? I don't get it. Again, somebody needs to talk to somebody else. We need a good story editor in here. You know, it's, it's the way my brain works. But I think that's, again, part of the unfinished nature of God becoming. And, and uh, I think doesn't Brueggemann has some 
some quote I'm going to mess up where he feels like God is uh, trying to overcome the, ah, he's in, it's almost like an alcohol, he's a recovering uh, alcoholic almost in, in nature to violence, you know, because there's a lot of Old Testament, Old Testament violence that doesn't really jive with the New Testament God is love thing. And um, again, I, I don't know the answer, but there's somehow I, I don't mind not knowing the answer. But there's, there's grace and God is bigger and more mysterious. And I, I'm, I'm becoming more and more holding on. I mean, early on, I wanted all the answers. I think that first half of life, I wanted the answers about God. Yes. I'm more comfortable with uh, God is loving. And I'm yep. all the other rest, all the rest of it is a little confusing to me. But... But yeah, I, and I think you're absolutely right. Like that idea of like, I want the answers and now I'm at peace and comfort without that. Yeah. That's been the creative process for me. Like at the beginning, you're like, what's the right way to work? How do I be the best director? How do I be the best animator? And the more you get into it, you're like, everyone is different. There is no answer. Every problem is a different one. Uh, the creative process is just ambiguous and you got to open yourself to that or you're going to you're going to close off some really good stuff. Amen. I love it. I, I think you guys have been, you guys have remained open, which is very impressive. <laughs> um, well, we talked about kind of this, this, the spear and the spiritual themes. And, um, and there's also this theme of sacrifice, kind of sacrificing for others that I've, that I've seen, you know, I, I found one of the most moving parts of inside out as strange mm -hmm. as it is, was the sacrifice that Bing Bong makes. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's the it's a sacrifice. I kind of come back. There's a Bible verse that comes out in a Disney movie. I'm sure you will know what movie I am talking about when I say it. But there's a there's a Bible verse in a, in a Disney movie. Greater love hath no one that they give up their life for yeah. their friend. And it shows up in the Jungle Book. Oh, you know uh, your Disney films. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but that seems to be a theme. That seems to be in Inside Out. We've got Bing Bong giving up, you know, giving up his hope of of life um and and certainly there's two moments in this that are a giving up of a sacrifice a sacrifice of of life um and it's a, certainly a massive theme in the bible it's the way that love is discussed and, and it finds its heart in jesus and the cross um so as you deal with such heavy topics like that in in a in a movie for children <laughs> in the second half of life <laughs> mm -hmm. what um what do you want people to hear from these acts of love? Because I mean, I think there's something there's something very profound that is coming on in these stories where people are willing to to love people to that degree. Um, what do you hope people take from those stories? Well, I, I always feel like you know there's kind of two parts to everybody. There's the frontal lobe part that I think like if you stop me and have a chance to think, and I'm going to tell you here's what I believe and so on. And then there's the lizard brain, right? And I, I, my hope is with these stories, I'm engaging the lizard brain. You don't have a chance to stop and think about was it right or proper for Bing Bong to sacrifice himself for, so that Joy can go on to adulthood with Riley. No, that's just like you, you viscerally uh, experience that. And, and hopefully then by looking at it, you can kind of learn something about about yourself it's been interesting this film because of the cultural implications you know look as as you can tell i'm not african-american our main character is black um and so we needed a lot of help on that i didn't know what i didn't know um, um and in, it came into play here because there were some elements where the african-american character was sacrificing for the white character and now she's not supposed to be white she's kind of ambiguous because she's an unborn soul but 
But she's, she's voiced by Tina Fey, so people are going to read that in. And uh, there were issues about what felt to me like a very noble sacrifice. There are cultural baggage that come with that. So um, there's there's a lot of complexity to story and uh, um, and what you bring to it. And again, that kind of goes back to biblically. You know, it's um, near impossible to put yourself in the situation of somebody hearing some of these stories two thousand years ago. What cultural baggage are they bringing what you know in when you say this king's name they immediately fill in all this other stuff that we're like huh that doesn't mean anything it's it's really uh pretty fascinating the nature of storytelling and and sort of the emotional information that comes with that yeah i agree i agree well i love that you're entering into that i love that you're trying to engage our amygdalas that, that lizard brain that's important yeah that's right <laughs> You've, you've talked about mentorship in this movie. Um, were there mentors that you look back on? I mean, you, you know, I've always loved that Mr. Rogers moment. You and I are both fans of Mr. Rogers, but you know that moment when he stops in his award show and just says, okay, we're all here because someone poured into our life. Um, yeah. And I'm going to give you time just to think about that. Who were some of the mentors in your journey that, that poured into your life? Well, I've had a lot. And, you know, most of them, I think, well, some of them would acknowledge maybe their position as a mentor, but others maybe wouldn't. Um, obviously, well, there's been important teachers all the way along. Um, my fourth grade teacher, Miss Kennedy, was, I think, the first one who said, or maybe it was my third grade teacher, Miss Phipps. Either way, somebody, I would always copy Peanuts cartoons. I loved Charlie Brown and, you know. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Yeah. And uh, Miss Phipps said, you know what, you should try making some of your own. So, you know, encouraging, like, that was that was huge. Later on, I was lucky enough to know this guy named Joe Grant, who, uh, when I knew him, he was in his 90s, and he still drew every day. He was a act, very active artist and, and imagination to, you know, crazy. He actually worked with Walt Disney back in the 40s. He chose the music for Fantasia, co-wrote the story for Dumbo, and uh, he came up with the title Monsters, Inc., actually. Monsters Incorporated was his idea. So he was another guy. He And I think the most profound thing that I picked up from him that I've spoken of elsewhere is the, he would say, I would pitch him a story. Like, I remember pitching him up, and he'd be like, hmm, well, what are you giving the audience to take home? Like, what does that mean? Like a going away present or something yeah and that the idea is what are you giving them emotionally that they're gonna lodge in their brain and because it's emotional it'll remember you know, like this is important I'll, I'll i'll bring it up later um what are you giving them to take home yeah well that's actually one of the important sermon questions that we ask all the time as well wow <laughs> what what do you want people to take home what do they what do you hope that they'll get what and what do you hope they'll do with it um that's awesome. Those are great. Do you have any member mentors now? Yeah, well, quite a number. And, and you know, I'm kind of, I feel like I don't have enough older friends in my life. So a lot of my mentors now are younger mm -hmm. people that I'm learning from that are, you know, on one hand, I feel like I'm supposed to be mentoring them because that's the job title, but I end up learning more from them than they probably do from me. Um, you know, other folks that I'm working with uh, that are are really smart. This one guy, Dan Scanlon, who uh, directed Onward, uh, he is just such a smart, smart, uh, thoughtful filmmaker. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so he's somebody that every time I meet with him, he's like, you know, asking me questions about working with composers or whatever. And, and I'll say stuff and then he'll spout these things. I'm like, whoa, that's amazing. So yeah, uh, I think, yeah, that's, that's one that came to mind anyway. No, I love that. And I, and I, with you, I am uncomfortable with the mentorship idea. When, when people say, gosh, can you be a mentor? I was like, no, but <laughs> I'll walk yeah. with you. And, and there are some places I'll say, oh, don't step there. That's, <laughs> I've stepped there before I did. It wasn't good. And then there are times when I'm looking and learning. So I think there's so much that we have to learn from each other. And that's, yeah. that's one of Yeah, the-, the worry for me is always like by saying, don't step there. I might, they might find some whole new path that I <laughs> didn't find because I, I got hurt or whatever. And so I'm really struggling. Well, not struggling, but I'm I'm engaged in this back and forth of like I know there's a lot of wisdom I have because of the experience I've been given, but there's a lot of wisdom and ignorance as well. Maybe that's the wrong choice of words, but there's a lot of cool stuff you can do because you don't know you can. <laughs> there is it is that is very wise. I um I often tell people I don't know if I'm wise, but I think I'm less stupid. I hope. <laughs> Yeah, I hope. Um, well, you, and you mentioned a little bit about this, that you're you're doing a, this cross-cultural experience of doing this movie about an experience that is not your own experience. What did, what did you put into place to do your best? Because um, I know you guys do this with so much sensitivity and so much openness. What, what were the things you did early on? I mean, I know you picked a director um, or you picked another writer who was able to, mm-hmm. to walk with you and who brought so much to the, sounds like brought so much to the story. Just, um, you know, I heard that he added, kind of helped add the barbershop scene, which mm-hmm. was fantastic. Um, yeah, Kemp, Kemp Powers we brought. He was one of the, we recognized, so it was me and, and another guy, Mike Jones, uh, that were writing and we pretty quickly recognized, okay, this character is feeling very shallow. He needs more depth. And so that's why we reached out to him and he really, he, we had already in the film a bunch of elements like Joe is in his mid forties. He's from Queens, New York. He is a jazz musician and ja- Kemp was all of those things. So he just brought this incredible specificity to things. But in answer to your question, I think I made a lot of mistakes. Hopefully they were quiet enough that they didn't upset a lot of people, but I didn't know how much help we needed. Um, and between the fear of saying the wrong thing and acting stupid or offending somebody, I, uh, and the sort of schedule of, Hey, we have a, le- a year less than we're supposed to, to be able to make this thing. I don't want to get all focused in this cultural stuff. I just want to tell the story. Those were all wrong decisions, but I didn't know it at the time. Um, and I think I'm really grateful for everybody sticking with me through the stupid phase into a new stupid phase that I'm in now. Uh, um, and, uh, and, and being able to make those mistakes, I think is, is pretty crucial. I think that do, that is one of the big things that makes everybody so uptight about this discussion is like, I'm going to say something dumb or I'm going to piss these people off or, you know, and, and, uh, I think, look, we can't make these movies right the first time. That's why it takes five years. We do it literally by the time you see the movie on the screen, that's like version eight. Of the movie, we made a lot of dumb mistakes, but we learned from them, and the movie hopefully gets better and better. And I think we, as people, are the same way. We can't be perfect the first time. We gotta allow ourselves the opportunity to make those mistakes and say dumb things and stick our foot in our mouth. And probably not even perfect the last time. 
No, <laughs> no. But, Just but like the know, movies. They're not perfect the last time. You know, I mean, a lot of the writing that I've read recently about Pixar is you guys have created a, an environment where you're allowed to make mistakes. You guys have created an environment that's not a shame-based environment. I think, you know, kudos to you guys that there's that there's that freedom to get it wrong and to and to learn from that. That's the goal, yeah. And that's that's what pastors are trying to push churches to be as well. So I'm right with you on that. Um, and then it comes out in the midst of pretty unprecedented racial unrest in our culture, um, yeah. which was not going on when you were, well, not to the extent that it is now. It was. Yeah, yeah it has been for 200 years, but. Has, well, even longer. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's true. Since but like the happened. 1600s. But you guys were pretty much done with the movie by the time George Floyd yeah. happened, right? So. Yeah. So what's yeah. that? This, having this. This is a first for Disney for Pixar, right? Uh, yeah, they've Disney has done like a Princess and the Frog, um, but I, apparently uh, the black culture doesn't really feel like that speaks very authentically to them. At least that's what I've been told. I obviously can't say firsthand. Um, and this film, we were super nervous as we went along, you know, and we we enlisted so many different um, cultural trusts. We call them, you know, people within the studio who are African American people outside the studio who are black musicians or teachers, all these different people to really speak to, because uh, you want the character to be authentic. And even if I don't know these things personally, I can kind of sense it, I can smell it, you know, if it's right or wrong. And so you want it, you want that authenticity to so that the character has depth. Um, that was super important even before the George Floyd of it. But I think the other thing that I didn't recognize, having grown up, as a white guy in Minnesota, you know, all the characters look kind of like me and I just took that for granted. Um, but there is something about the stories that we tell that sends the message, here's who is in the club. Here are the people we're talking about. These are the important people in these yep. stories, you know? Yep. And so if you're a person over here, you get this message like, I'm not really part of this, you know? And that's uh, something that only really by making this movie did I f start to understand a little more deeply. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, Pete, I've taken so much of your time. Can I just do a quick lightning round at the end? Okay. okay um, These are all scary. You have well, you have souvenirs. But souvenirs play a part in this in this story. Oh yes. A collection of, of of little things that remind this. Are there any souvenirs around your workspace? I mean, I remember the Pixar. I remember the Pixar office just being covered with souvenirs um, yeah yeah this play i was going to show you some but they're all kind of like junk like i don't <laughs> know why i keep this pen this is probably the first pen that i actually emptied and used up instead of lost oh. <laughs> so it doesn't have any ink left but but that was that was exciting <laughs> not really me i yeah i don't have anything more exciting than that around here other than a few light bulbs wow i love that i um I love the jazz music that you brought in. I also love that you chose a Dylan song for your, for, um, is there, was that an homage to the Nobel prize winner or did that just, was the song just work well? Was it the editor uh, of the film, Kevin Nolting is a huge Bob Dylan fan and he's been looking to fit a Bob Dylan fan into a Pixar film since Nemo. So and finally. And bringing in the subterranean homesick blues. That's <laughs> right. Happy. Um, I noticed Nicholas. Um, I noticed that his name was in the credits there. What's it like? Yeah. What's it like working with 
working with family members and uh, i tried to fire him but uh <laughs> yeah he's he's he works at uh in a separate division of it's another company owned by disney but it's lucasfilm which does sound and so um ren kleiss who's a brilliant sound designer on the film um picked him up and he's i i don't remember his actual title on this like second assistant's dialogue editor or something like that so as with everything you dig down there's all these detailed jobs that uh, are fascinating to learn about and uh, it was fun seeing them around even though you know by the time we did sound everybody it was covid so everybody's masked up but uh at least i got to see him during that time it was fun that's awesome that's yeah awesome. i i do remember i have fond memories of watching movies um with you and the pixar crowd and just that you guys would all stick around for the credits i just remember mm -hmm. you, would, you would all stick around for the credits and you would cheer and yell and scream yeah. and the credits were like the key part of the movie <laughs> which i thought we make them longer and longer now <laughs> okay you ended you ended this credit um without like your without like some of the bloopers that used to happen but you did end it with what looked like an homage to ferris bueller was that the, oh <laughs> there was terry at the end there was that just sort of a coming That's... back to our, our growing up or it was actually an homage to the Muppet movie, ah. which has a similar thing. Yeah. And without getting to specifics, you can go back and look at that. That's a good, it's a good movie. And then Zoe had two questions she wanted to make sure. Okay. One, she has heard rumors that the Up House was modeled after a house near where she lives in Bowel. Is that true? We drove up and down um, in Berkeley. Do you remember Picante, the Mexican yeah. place? just a couple blocks south of that there were it's kind of an amalgam of a number of different small houses we wanted it to look lightweight so we didn't want it to have a lot of brick and heavy elements so victorian kind of looked i mean it's absurd of course we did the calculations because it's a computer scientist based company one of the first things they did was calculate how many helium balloons would it actually take to lift a house oh yeah that, that's not that's not going to be helpful because there are so <laughs> no. many that there there's no. no way you could do it yeah i think it was like 300 million or something like that it's ridiculous <laughs> i remember but no the, the answer really is uh, we made it up and it's uh an amalgam of a bunch of victorian houses here in in uh, northern california got it got it and then her next question was are you going to do a movie with michael b jordan and can she come <laughs> wow <laughs> Well, uh, never say never. Here we are. Yep. If, if we do, we'll make sure to extend an invite. Well, well, I usually end these with praying for someone. Is that okay? Can I pray for you? And the That'd one? be fantastic. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful for the heart and the mind of creativity that you've given Pete Doctor and thankful for the stories he's telling and the ways that he is gathering a community of people to tell stories and to remember love and grace and truth and to... Um, call us all into lives that are marked by your grace and your love. Be with him and be a, bless him and his family in the midst of this journey. We just pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. 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 Thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you.